Part four of Phase the Fourth The Consequence of Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty one Tess wrote a most touching and urgent letter to her mother the very next day, and by the end of the week a response to her communication arrived in Joan Durbeyfield's wandering last century hand. Dear Tess, I write these few lines hoping they will find you well, as they leave me at present, thank God for it. Dear Tess, we are all glad to hear that you are going to really be married soon. But with respect to your question, Tess, I say between ourselves, quite private, but very strong, that on no account do you say a word of your bygone trouble to him. I did not tell everything to your father, he being so proud on account of his respectability, which perhaps your intended is the same. Many, a oh woman, some of the highest in the land, have had a trouble in their time, and why should you trumpet yours when others don't trumpet theirs? No girl would be such a fool, especially as it is so long ago, and not your fault at all. I shall answer the same if you ask me fifty times. Besides, you must bear in mind that, knowing it to be your childish nature to tell all that's in your heart, so simple, I made you promise me never to let it out by word or deed, having your welfare in my mind, and you most solemnly did promise it going from this door. I have not named either that question or your coming marriage to your father, as he would blab it everywhere poor simple man. Dear Tess, keep up your spirits, and we mean to send you a hogshead of cider for your wedding, knowing there is not much in your parts, and thin sour stuff what there is. So no more at present, and with kind love to your young man, from your affectionate mother, J. Derbyfield. Oh, mother, mother, murmured Tess she was recognizing how light was the touch of events the most oppressive upon mrs durbeyfield's elastic spirit her mother did not see life as tess saw it that haunting episode of bygone days was to her mother but a passing accident but perhaps her mother was right as to the course to be followed whatever she might be in her reasons silence seemed on the face of it best for her adored one's happiness silence it should be Thus, steadied by a command from the only person in the world who had any shadow of right to control her action, Tess grew calmer. The responsibility was shifted, and her heart was lighter than it had been for weeks. The days of declining autumn which followed her ascent, beginning with the month of October, formed a season through which she lived in spiritual altitudes more nearly approaching ecstasy than any other period of her life. There was hardly a touch of earth in her love for Clare. To her sublime trustfulness he was all that goodness could be, knew all that a guide, philosopher, and friend should know. She thought every line in the contour of his person the perfection of masculine beauty, his soul the soul of a saint, his intellect that of a seer. The wisdom of her love for him, as love, sustained her dignity. She seemed to be wearing a crown. The compassion of his love for her, as she saw it, made her lift up her heart to him in devotion. 
he would sometimes catch her large worshipful eyes that had no bottom to them looking at him from their depths as if she saw something immortal before her she dismissed the past trod upon it and put it out as one treads on a coal that is smouldering and dangerous she had not known that men could be so disinterested chivalrous protective in their love for women as he angel clare was far from all that she had thought him in this respect absurdly far indeed but he was in truth more spiritual than animal he had himself well in hand and was singularly free from grossness though not cold-natured he was rather bright than hot less byronic than shelleyan could love desperately but with a love more especially inclined to the imagination and ethereal it was a fastidious emotion which could jealously guard the loved one against his very self this amazed and enraptured tess whose slight experiences had been so infelicitous till now and in her reaction from indignation against the male sex she swerved to excess of honour for clare they unaffectedly sought each other's company in her honest faith she did not disguise her desire to be with him the sum of her instincts on this matter if clearly stated would have been that the elusive quality of her sex which attracts men in general might be distasteful to so perfect a man after an avowal of love since it must in its very nature carry with it a suspicion of art the country custom of unreserved comradeship out of doors during betrothal was the only custom she knew and to her it had no strangeness though it seemed oddly anticipative to clare till he saw how normal a thing she in common with all the dairy folk regarded it thus during this october month of wonderful afternoons they roved along the meads by creeping paths which followed the brinks of trickling tributary brooks hopping across by little wooden bridges to the other side and back again they were never out of the sound of some purling weir whose buzz accompanied their own murmuring while all the beams of the sun almost as horizontal as the mead itself formed a pollen of radiance over the landscape they saw tiny blue fogs in the shadows of trees and hedges all the time that there was bright sunshine elsewhere the sun was so near the ground and the sward so flat that the shadows of clare and tess would stretch a quarter of a mile ahead of them like two long fingers pointing afar to where the green alluvial reaches abutted against the sloping sides of the vale men were at work here and there for it was the season of taking up the meadows or digging the little waterways clear for the winter irrigation and mending their banks where trodden down by the cows the shovelfuls of loam black as jet brought there by the river when it was as wide as the whole valley were an essence of soils pounded champagnes of the past steeped refined and subtilized to extraordinary richness out of which came all the fertility of the mead and of the cattle grazing there clare heartily kept his arm round her waist in sight of these watermen with the air of a man who was accustomed to public dalliance though actually as shy as she who with lips parted and eyes askance on the labourers wore the look of a wary animal the while you are not ashamed of owning me as yours before them she said gladly oh no but if it should reach the ears of your friends at Eminster that you are walking about like this with me a milkmaid the most bewitching milkmaid ever seen they might feel it a hurt to their dignity my dear girl 
a d'urberville hurt the dignity of a clare it is a grand card to play that of your belonging to such a family and i am reserving it for a grand effect when we are married and have the proofs of your descent from parson tringham apart from that my future is to be totally foreign to my family it will not affect even the surface of their lives we shall leave this part of england perhaps england itself and what does it matter how people regard us here you will like going will you not she could answer no more than a bare affirmative so great was the emotion aroused in her at the thought of going through the world with him as his own familiar friend her feelings almost filled her ears like a babble of waves and surged up to her eyes she put her hand in his and thus they went on to a place where the reflected sun glared up from the river under a bridge with a molten metallic glow that dazzled their eyes though the sun itself was hidden by the bridge they stood still whereupon little furred and feathered heads popped up from the smooth surface of the water but finding that the disturbing presences had paused and not passed by they disappeared again upon this river brink they lingered till the fog began to close round them which was very early in the evening at this time of the year settling on the lashes of her eyes where it rested like crystals and on his brows and hair they walked later on sundays when it was quite dark some of the dairy people who were also out of doors on the first sunday evening after their engagement heard her impulsive speeches exercised a fragments though they were too far off to hear the words discoursed noted the spasmodic catch in her remarks broken into syllables by the leapings of her heart as she walked leaning on his arm her contented pauses the occasional little laugh upon which her soul seemed to ride the laugh of a woman in company with the man she loves and has won from all other women unlike anything else in nature they marked the buoyancy of her tread like the skim of a bird which has not quite alighted her affection for him was now the breath and life of tessa's being it enveloped her as a photosphere irradiated her into forgetfulness of her past sorrows keeping back the gloomy spectres that would persist in their attempts to touch her doubt fear moodiness care shame she knew that they were waiting like wolves just outside the circumscribing light but she had long spells of power to keep them in hungry subjection there a spiritual forgetfulness coexisted with an intellectual remembrance she walked in brightness but she knew that in the background those shapes of darkness were always spread they might be receding or they might be approaching one or the other a little every day one evening tess and claire were obliged to sit indoors keeping house all the other occupants of the domicile being away as they talked she looked thoughtfully up at him and met his two appreciative eyes i am not worthy of you no i am not she burst out jumping up from her low stool as though appalled at his homage and the fullness of her own joy thereat claire deeming the whole basis of her excitement to be that which was only the smaller part of it said i won't have you speak like it dear tess distinction does not consist in the facile use of a contemptible set of conventions but in being numbered among those who are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report as you are my tess she struggled with the sob in her throat 
how often had that string of excellences made her young heart ache in church of late years and how strange that he should have cited them now why didn't you stay and love me when i was sixteen living with my little sisters and brothers and you danced on the green oh why didn't you why didn't you she said impetuously clasping her hands angel began to comfort and reassure her thinking to himself truly enough what a creature of moods she was and how careful he would have to be of her when she depended for her happiness entirely on him ah why didn't i stay he said that is just what i feel if i had only known but you must not be so bitter in your regret why should you be with the woman's instinct to hide she diverged hastily i should have had four years more of your heart than i can ever have now then i should not have wasted my time as i have done i should have had so much longer happiness it is no mature woman with a long dark vista of intrigue behind her who was tormented thus but a girl of simple life not yet one-and-twenty who had been caught during her days of immaturity like a bird in a spring to calm herself the more completely she rose from her little stool and left the room overturning the stool with her skirts as she went he sat on by the cheerful firelight thrown from a bundle of green ash sticks laid across the dogs the sticks snapped pleasantly and hissed out bubbles of sap from their ends when she came back she was herself again do you not think you are just a wee bit capricious fitful tess he said good-humouredly as he spread the cushion for her on the stool and seated himself on the settle beside her i wanted to ask you something and just then you ran away yes perhaps i am capricious she murmured she suddenly approached him and put a hand upon each of his arms no angel i am not really so by nature i mean more particularly to assure him that she was not she placed herself close to him in the settle and allowed her head to find a resting place against Clare's shoulder. "'What do you want to ask me? I am sure I will answer it,' she continued humbly. "'Well, you love me, and have agreed to marry me, and hence there follows a thirdly. When shall the day be?' "'I like living like this. But I must think of starting in business on my own hook with the new year, or a little later.' and before i get involved in the multifarious details of my new position i should like to have secured my partner but she timidly answered to talk quite practically wouldn't it be best not to marry till after all that though i can't bear the thought of your going away and leaving me here of course you cannot and it is not best in this case i want you to help me in many ways in making my start when shall it be why not a fortnight from now no she said becoming grave i have so many things to think of first but he drew her gently nearer to him the reality of marriage was startling when it loomed so near before discussion of the question had proceeded further there walked round the corner of the settle into the full firelight of the apartment mr derryman crick mrs crick and two of the milkmaids tess sprang like an elastic ball from his side to her feet while her face flushed and her eyes shone in the firelight i knew how it would be if i sat so close to him 
she cried, with vexation. I said to myself, they are sure to come and catch us. But I wasn't really sitting on his knee, though it might have seemed as if I was, almost. Well, if so be you hadn't told us, I am sure we shouldn't have noticed that you've been sitting anywhere at all in this light, replied the dairyman. He continued to his wife, with the stolid mien of a man who understood nothing of the emotions relating to matrimony. Now, Christiana, that shows that folks should never fancy other folks to be supposing things when they beant. Oh, no, I should never have thought a word of where she was sitting to, if she hadn't told me. Not I. We are going to be married soon, said Clare, with improvised phlegm. Ah, and be ye. Well, I am truly glad to hear it, sir. I've thought you might do such a thing for some time. She's too good for a dairymaid. I said so the very first day I sighed her, and a prize for any man, and, what's more, a wonderful woman for a gentleman farmer's wife. He won't be at the mercy of his bailey with her at his side. Somehow Tess disappeared. She had been even more struck with the look of the girls who followed Crick than abashed by Crick's blunt praise. After supper, when she had reached her bedroom, they were all present. A light was burning, and each damsel was sitting up whitely in her bed, awaiting Tess, the whole like a row of avenging ghosts. But she saw in a few moments that there was no malice in their mood. They could scarcely feel as a loss what they had never expected to have. Their condition was objective, contemplative. "'He's going to marry her,' murmured Reddy, never taking eyes off Tess. "'How her face do show it!' "'You'll be going to marry him?' asked Marian. "'Yes,' said Tess. "'When?' day. They thought this was evasiveness only. "'Yes, going to marry him, a gentleman,' repeated Is Hewitt. And by a sort of fascination the three girls, one after another, crept out of their beds and came and stood barefooted round Tess. Retty put her hands upon Tess's shoulders, as if to realize her friend's corporeality after such a miracle, and the other two laid their arms round her waist, all looking into her face. "'How it do seem! Almost more than I can think of!' said Is Hewitt. Marian kissed Tess. "'Yes,' she murmured, as she withdrew her lips. "'Was that because of love for her, or because other lips have touched there by now?' continued Is dryly to Marian. "'I wasn't thinking of that.' said Marian simply. I was only feeling all the strangeness of it, that she is to be his wife, and nobody else. I don't say nay to it, nor either of us, because we did not think of it, only loved him. Still, nobody else is to Marian in the world, no fine lady, nobody in silks and satins, but she who do live like we. Are you sure you don't dislike me for it? said Tess in a low voice. They hung about her in their white nightgowns before replying, as if they considered their answer might lie in her look. "'I don't know,' murmured Reddy Priddle. "'I want to hate ye, but I cannot.' "'That's how I feel,' echoed Iz and Marian. "'I can't hate her. Somehow she hinders me.' "'He ought to marry one of you,' murmured Tess. "'Why? You are all better than I.' "'We better than you?' said the girls in a low, slow whisper. "'No, no, dear Tess, you are,' she contradicted impetuously, and suddenly tearing away from their clinging arms, 
she burst into a hysterical fit of tears, bowing herself on the chest of drawers and repeating incessantly, Oh, yes, yes, yes! Having once given way, she could not stop her weeping. He ought to have had one of you, she cried. I think I ought to make him even now. You would be better for him than— I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> they went up to her and clasped her round, but still her sobs tore her. Get some water, said Marian. She's upset by us, poor thing. They gently led her back to the side of her bed, where they kissed her warmly. You are best for him, said Marian, more ladylike and a better scholar than we, especially since he taught ye so much. But even you ought to be proud. You be proud, I'm sure. Yes, I am, she said, and I'm ashamed at so breaking down. When they were all in bed and the light was out, Marian whispered across to her, You will think of us when you be his wife, Tess, and of how we told ye that we loved him, and how we tried not to hate you, and, and did not hate you, and, and could not hate you, because you were his choice, and we never hoped to be chose by him. They were not aware that at these words salt stinging tears trickled down upon Tessa's pillow anew, and how she resolved, with a bursting heart, to tell all her history to Angel Clare, despite her mother's command, to let him for whom she lived and breathed despise her if he would, and her mother regard her as a fool, rather than preserve a silence which might be deemed a treachery to him, and which somehow seemed a wrong to these. Chapter 32 This penitential mood kept her from naming the wedding-day. The beginning of November found its date still in abeyance, though he asked her at the most tempting times. But Tessa's desire seemed to be for a perpetual betrothal in which everything should remain as it was then. The meads were changing now, but it was still warm enough in early afternoons before milking to idle there a while and the state of dairy-work at this time of year allowed a spare hour for idling. Looking over the damp sod in the direction of the sun, a glistening ripple of gossamer webs was visible to their eyes under the luminary, like the track of moonlight on the sea. Gnats, knowing nothing of their brief glorification, wandered across the shimmer of this pathway, irradiated as if they bore fire within them, then passed out of its line, and were quite extinct. In the presence of these things he would remind her that the date was still the question. Or he would ask her at night, when he accompanied her on some mission invented by Mrs. Crick, to give him the opportunity. This was mostly a journey to the farmhouse on the slopes above the vale, to inquire how the advanced cows were getting on in the straw-barton to which they were relegated. For it was the time of the year that brought great changes to the world of kine. Batches of the animals were sent away daily to this lying-in hospital, where they lived on straw till their calves were born, after which event, and as soon as the calf could walk, mother and offspring were driven back to the dairy. In the interval which elapsed before the calves were sold, there was, of course, little milking to be done, but as soon as the calf had been taken away, the milkmaids would have to set to work as usual. Returning from one of these dark walks, they reached a great gravel cliff immediately over the levels, where they stood still and listened. The water was now high in the streams, squirting through the weirs and tinkling under culverts. The smallest gullies were all full, 
there was no taking shortcuts anywhere, and foot-passengers were compelled to follow the permanent ways. From the whole extent of the invisible veil came a multitudinous intonation. It forced upon their fancy that a great city lay below them, and that the murmur was the vociferation of its populace. "'It seems like tens of thousands of them,' said Tess, holding public meetings in their market-places, arguing, preaching, quarrelling, sobbing, groaning, praying, and cursing. Clare was not particularly heeding. "'Did uh, Crick speak to you to-day, dear, about his not wanting much assistance during the winter months?' "'No. The cows are going dry rapidly.' "'Yes. Six or seven went into the straw barton yesterday, and three the day before, making nearly twenty in the straw already.' "'Ah! Is it that the farmer don't want my help for the calving? Oh, I am not wanted here any more, and I have tried so hard to—' Crick didn't exactly say that he would no longer require you. But, knowing what our relations were, he, he said in the most good-natured and respectful manner possible, that he supposed on my leaving at Christmas that I should take you with me, and on my asking what he would do without you, he merely observed that, as a matter of fact, it was a time of year when he could do with very little female help. I'm afraid that I was sinner enough to feel rather glad that he was in this way forcing your hand. I don't think you ought to have felt glad, Angel, because tis always mournful not to be wanted, even if at the same time tis convenient. Well, it is convenient. You have admitted that. He put his finger upon her cheek. Ah, he said, what? I feel the red rising up at her having been caught. But why should I trifle so? We will not trifle. Life is too serious. It is. Perhaps I saw that before you did. She was seeing it then. To decline to marry him, after all, in obedience to her emotion of last night, and leave the dairy, meant to go to some strange place, not a dairy, for milkmaids were not in request now calving time was coming on, to go to some arable farm where no divine being like Angel Clare was. She hated the thought, and she hated more the thought of going home. So that, seriously, dearest Tess, he continued, since you will probably have to leave at Christmas, it is in every way desirable and convenient that I should carry you off then as my property. Besides, if you were not the most uncalculating girl in the world, you would know that we could not go on like this for ever. I wish we could, that it would always be summer and autumn, and you always courting me, and, and always thinking as much of me as you have done through the past summer-time. I always shall. Oh, I know you will, she cried, with a sudden fervor of faith in him. Angel, I will fix the day when I will become yours for always. Thus, at last, it was arranged between them, during that dark walk home, amid the myriads of liquid voices on the right and left. When they reached the dairy, Mr. and Mrs. Crick were promptly told, with injunctions of secrecy, for each of the lovers was desirous that the marriage should be kept as private as possible. The dairyman, though he had thought of dismissing her soon, now made a great concern about losing her. What should he do about his skimming? Who would make the ornamental butter-pats for the Angleberry and Sanborn ladies? Mrs. Crick congratulated Tess on the shilly-shallying having at last come to an end, and said that directly she set eyes on Tess 
she divined that she was to be the chosen one of somebody who was no common outdoor man. Tessa looked so superior as she walked across the Barton on the afternoon of her arrival, that she was of a good family she could have sworn. In point of fact Mrs. Crick did remember thinking that Tess was graceful and good-looking as she approached, but the superiority might have been a growth of the imagination aided by subsequent knowledge. Tess was now carried along upon the wings of the hours, without the sense of a will. The word had been given, the number of the day written down. Her naturally bright intelligence had begun to admit the fatalistic convictions common to field-folk and those who associate more extensively with natural phenomena than with their fellow-creatures, and she accordingly drifted into that passive responsiveness to all things her lover suggested, characteristic of the frame of mind. But she wrote anew to her mother, ostensibly to notify the wedding-day, really to again implore her advice. It was a gentleman who had chosen her, which perhaps her mother had not sufficiently considered. A post-nuptial explanation, which might be accepted with a light heart by a rougher man, might not be received with the same feeling by him. But this communication brought no reply from Mrs. Durbeyfield. Despite Angel Clare's plausible representation to himself and to Tess of the practical need for their immediate marriage, there was, in truth, an element of precipitancy in the step as became apparent at a later date. He loved her dearly, though perhaps rather ideally and fancifully than with the impassioned thoroughness of her feeling for him. He had entertained no notion, when doomed, as he had thought, to an unintellectual bucolic life, that such charms as he beheld in this idyllic creature would be found behind the scenes. Unsophistication was a thing to talk of, but he had not known how it really struck one until he came here yet he was very far from seeing his future track clearly, and it might be a year or two before he would be able to consider himself fairly started in life. The secret lay in the tinge of recklessness imparted to his career and character by the sense that he had been made to miss his true destiny through the prejudices of his family. "'Don't you think twould have been better for us to wait till you were quite settled in your Midland farm?' she once asked timidly. A Midland farm was the idea just then. To tell the truth, my Tess, I don't like you to be left anywhere away from my protection and sympathy. The reason was a good one, so far as it went. His influence over her had been so marked that she had caught his manner and habits, his speech and phrases, his likings and his aversions, and to leave her in farmland would be to let her slip back again out of accord with him. He wished to have her under his charge for another reason. His parents had naturally desired to see her once at least before he carried her off to a distant settlement, English or colonial, and as no opinion of theirs was to be allowed to change his intention, he judged that a couple of months' life with him in lodgings, whilst seeking for an advantageous opening, would be of some social assistance to her at what she might feel to be a trying ordeal, her presentation to his mother at the vicarage. Next, he wished to see a little of the working of a flour-mill, having an idea that he might combine the use of one with corn-growing. The proprietor of a large old water-mill at Wellbridge, once the mill of an abbey, had offered him the inspection of his time-honoured mode of procedure, and a hand in the operations for a few days, whenever he should choose to come. Clare paid a visit to the place, some few miles distance, one day at this time, to inquire particulars, and returned to Talbothay's in the evening. She found him determined to spend a short time at the Wellbridge flour-mills. 
and what had determined him less the opportunity of an insight into grinding and bolting than the casual fact that lodgings were to be obtained in that very farmhouse which before its mutilation had been the mansion of a branch of the d'urberville family this was always how clare settled practical questions by a sentiment which had nothing to do with them they decided to go immediately after the wedding and remain for a fortnight instead of journeying to towns and inns then we will start off to examine some farms on the other side of london that i have heard of he said and by march or april we will pay a visit to my father and mother questions of procedure such as these arose and passed and the day the incredible day on which she was to become his loomed large in the near future the thirty-first of december new year's eve was the date his wife she said to herself could it ever be their two selves together nothing to divide them every incident shared by them why not and yet why one sunday morning is hewitt returned from church and spoke privately to tess you was not called home this morning what it should have been the first time of asking to-day she answered looking quietly at tess you meant to be married new year's eve dearie the other returned a quick affirmative and there must be three times of asking and now there will be only two sundays left between tess felt her cheek paling is was right of course there must be three perhaps he had forgotten if so there must be a week's postponement and that was unlucky how could she remind her lover she who had been so backward was suddenly fired with impatience and alarm lest she should lose her dear prize a natural incident relieved her anxiety is mentioned the omission of the bands to mrs crick and mrs crick assumed a matron's privilege of speaking to angel on the point have you forgotten mr clare the bands i mean no i have not forgotten says clare as soon as he caught tess alone he assured her don't let them tease you about the bands a license will be quieter for us and i have decided on a license without consulting you so if you go to church on sunday morning you will not hear your own name if you wish to i didn't wish to hear it dearest she said proudly but to know that things were in train was an immense relief to tess notwithstanding who had well-nigh feared that somebody would stand up and forbid the bands on the ground of her history how events were favouring her i don't feel quite easy she said to herself all this good fortune may be scourged out of me afterwards by a lot of ill that's how heaven mostly does i wish i could have had common bands but everything went smoothly she wondered whether he would like her to be married in her present best white frock or if she ought to buy a new one the question was set at rest by his forethought disclosed by the arrival of some large packages addressed to her inside them she found a whole stock of clothing from bonnet to shoes including a perfect morning costume such as would well suit the simple wedding they planned he entered the house shortly after the arrival of the packages and heard her upstairs undoing them a minute later she came down with a flush on her face and tears in her eyes how thoughtful you've been she murmured her cheek upon his shoulder even to the gloves and handkerchief my own love how good how kind no no tess just an order to a tradeswoman in london nothing more 
and to divert her from thinking too highly of him, he told her to go upstairs and take her time and see if it all fitted, and if not, to get the village seamstress to make a few alterations. She did return upstairs and put on the gown. Alone, she stood for a moment before the glass, looking at the effect of her silk attire. And then there came into her head her mother's ballad of the mystic robe, that never would become that wife that had once done amiss, which Mrs. Durbeyfield had used to sing to her as a child, so blithely and so archly, her foot on the cradle, which she rocked to the tune. Suppose this robe would betray her by changing colour, as her robe had betrayed Queen Guinevere. Since she had been at the dairy, she had not once thought of the lines till now. End of Part Four